missions and what, what God is doing around the world. And so I've selected as my text uh, the one that was read here in Romans 15. Now, I, I don't know what your impressions are about missions. Let me tell you that, that my first impressions of missions were not particularly positive. Uh, it was the church that I was in when I was a teenager. And primarily my interaction or my encounter with missions was, uh, was the weekly bulletin that uh, we had uh, in our service. And there would be a list of names and uh, places uh, of the missionaries that we support, the mission agencies that uh, they're associated with here on the back of the bulletin. And, and that, to me, was really the only knowledge I had of missions. Every once in a while, uh, one of the names uh, showed up in, in the service and, and uh, gave a little report about what uh, God was doing, what they were doing. Uh, unfortunately, most of these people, now again, this is the teenager uh, teenager's perspective. Most of these people were several generations, uh, two or three generations uh, older than I was. And um, for some reason, many were not married either. And so I thought that that's what a missionary was, is somebody who had gray hair and, uh, and was single. Um, that, that was my understanding of what missions was and, and uh, what missionaries were. I don't know what your impressions are right now. The text that we've taken, uh, we've selected here, is what Paul thought about missions. This is a, a passage that really drives uh, Paul. This is, this is where we hear his heart about missions. This is where we sense his passion about missions. Uh, this is where we see his motivation for missions in this passage. And as we go through this passage and select a few observations about what Paul thought about missions, I would trust that God would use this to more closely align our thoughts and our values, our passion about missions with what uh, God is saying uh, through Paul in this passage. Now, it's important that we do understand the background of this passage. Uh, Paul is writing Romans uh, probably on his third uh, missionary journey. Uh, Paul, of course, was a missionary, and so as you read this, we're reading from a missionary's heart. Uh, he had gone through Asia Minor and what we would call Turkey uh, today, and Greece on his first uh, three journeys. He's probably in the city of Corinth as he writes this. And as we read uh, there in around verse 25 and so forth, Paul gives his plans. Uh, he's in Corinth. He's going to be going to Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem he's going to give this offering which uh, Gentiles have uh, given to Paul to these poor saints uh, in Jerusalem. And then Paul says, from Jerusalem, I hope to come see you in Rome. Uh, and then after Rome, then I want to go to Spain. So Paul contemplates this fourth uh, missionary journey and we're not sure exactly how far he got uh, in the end on that fourth journey, whether he actually did get to Spain or not. Uh, he did get to Rome, but in circumstances other than that which he thought, at least at this point. So that's the background uh, where Paul is uh, as he writes this letter. This becomes important, uh, we're going to see a little bit later, uh, in when we think about what Paul thought about missions. 
If you're making notes, the first point uh, would be, the first observation would be that in Paul's mind, missions and worship go hand in hand. Missions and worship uh, go hand in hand. There's not, normally, when we think about missions, worship is probably not the first thing that you think of. But that is the first thing that Paul writes about when he talks about his missionary experience, is worship. Now, if you do think about missions and worship, probably what you think about is, okay, well, uh, through missions, uh, people come to know Christ. And as they know him, they glorify him as Savior. They worship God uh, truly. And so missions then results in worship. And that's true. That would be a a valid point. Uh, It's not a point that particularly comes out in this passage. But if you just turn back uh, a few verses, uh, we see that point uh, rather clearly. Uh, Let's go back to uh, chapter 15. Let's begin in verse 8. Uh, chapter 15, 8. Uh, and Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, listen to this, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Uh, there's the idea of missions bringing about, resulting in worship, as it is written. And then Paul has four quotations here from the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. So four passages, if you were to look at the cross-references for each of those passages, you would see that they're quoted from 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. And it is though Paul is taking from each one of the major divisions of the Old Testament scriptures, from the historical books, from the law, the writings, and the prophets. And Paul is saying that the scope of the Old Testament scriptures all point to this idea that missions and the bringing of Gentiles to faith will result in the worship of God. And verse 9 is amazing. He says that, that this, uh, this plan of God, this redemptive plan, that is it's a fulfillment of the promises that are made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God. You know, in the end, ultimately, missions is not about us. It's not even about those people that we bring to Christ. It's ultimately for the worship of God. It is God-centered. It is Christ-exalting. That's what missions really is. That's the connection that Paul points out here between uh, missions and worship. We see this uh, culminating in God's plan in a wonderful way in the book of Revelation. I want you to turn there. Revelation chapter 4. This culmination of the history of salvation 
as John receives a vision of people from all tribes and tongues and nations glorifying and worshiping God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders, and the 24 elders there probably represent God's people, drawn from the Old Testament people, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, plus the New Testament church, uh, represented by the 12 apostles. And so 12 and 12 is 24. That's probably what the 24 elders represent, is God's people through the ages, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the church, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. So the 24 elders fall before him, God, who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Skip over to verse, or chapter 5, rather. Uh, chapter 5, the same kind of scene in the throne room of God. And again, you see in verse 8 of chapter 5, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, again, uh, falling before the lamb, uh, the crucified lamb. Uh, and it says, each one had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing this song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the 24 elders there, uh, representing God's people through the ages, they themselves are acknowledging that, that God has purchased them, and they sing this song of worship uh, to the Lamb. So salvation history then, this from the Old Testament through to the end of Revelation, has this theme of the Gentiles worshiping God. And that's the result of missions, the result of what God is doing around the world, and particularly in the nations that have not yet heard him, and bring them then to uh, faith. I can think probably of no higher motivation of missions than this idea that, that uh, missions brings about uh, the worship of God. John Piper, uh, in his usual pithy manner, uh, sort of capsulates this thought when he says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. In other words, where people do not yet know Christ, where they do not yet truly worship him, then that is a motivation for our involvement in missions. So missions and worship do go together. As I said, uh, we looked at the first part of chapter 15. In our passage, there is another connection between worship and missions. And we find that in verse 16. Let's turn to verse 16. Uh, Paul says uh, here, because of the grace God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty 
of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, as you read this passage, as you read this verse, there are several words then that would come up into your mind that would, are prominent because of this idea of worship. Uh, there are several. There's, first of all, this one of, of minister, uh, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, that word is not always found in the context of, of worship. Uh, sometimes it's found, for instance, in, in Philippians, it's found of Epaphroditus, who was a servant of Paul's needs. Uh, just a, a servant, uh, just a, a common everyday servant, a minister. But other times, this word does fall in the context of worship. Uh, it actually is the, the English word we get uh, from that is liturgy. Uh, so it has this worship uh, connotation. And it's often used in that context. Uh, we would talk about a Sunday morning service. Well, the service there is, is a worshipful service. Uh, and that's the idea that is in that word uh, minister. And because this context then has several other words that focus our minds on worship, that's the reading we should understand this word to have in this context as well. It's a, a time, or, or Paul is talking about himself as a minister in worship of God. He talks about the priestly duty uh, there. That, that is that proclaiming the gospel is actually an act of worship. It's the priestly duty of worship. So the, the point that we see in this passage, in contrast to what we read earlier in chapter 15, is not simply that missions brings about worship. The point Paul makes in verse 16 is that missions is an act of worship. In the very act, of, in the very proclamation of the God, of uh, God, that is a priestly duty. And so then Paul goes on, so that the Gentiles might become an offering, like the Old Testament offerings of worship. Now here again, this is not the Gentiles who are worshiping God. This is the Gentiles who are the offering themselves. That Paul in missions is offering the Gentiles as an offering to God in worship. Sanctified. Again, another word that is often used in the context of worship. So in verse 16, what we see is, is Paul is closely connecting missions to worship. Not only that missions brings about results in worship, but the missions in and of itself is an act of worship before God. This context, as I said, is important because there's something else that we see here that would sort of support this idea we don't see it immediately in the text. We have to go back to Acts. Remember what's happening here. As I said, Paul's on his third missionary journey. He's taken a collection, a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, we're not exactly sure why uh, that collection was necessary. But Gentiles, along the missionary journey that he was making, the third missionary journey, Gentiles took collections and gave the collection to Paul so that he would take it back to Jerusalem. Turn to Acts chapter 20. 
and we read a little bit more about that collection, uh, at least the circumstances around that collection. We don't actually read about that collection as we read about the third missionary journey of Paul in Acts. We see it in Romans and in other books, but we don't see it in Acts. But if you add the, if you read between the lines, you can see what's happening. Uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul's in Macedonia. This is when he's writing Romans, all right? So that it says in verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3, he stayed three months in Greece. That probably is the time that he's writing the book of Romans. Uh, verse 4, it says, he was accompanied by, and there's a list of names here, Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went ahead, went ahead and waited for us in Troas. What, what's this about? Well, these were men that are representing the churches that contributed to that offering. And they're accompanying the offering. They're accompanying Paul as he goes back to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, the marvelous thing is, what's happening is that when Paul brings that offering to Jerusalem, he is bringing an offering to the saints in Jerusalem, where the temple of God is. But he is also bringing the evidence of God's fruit in his ministry among the Gentiles. And he's bringing these people, these Gentiles, to the very city of God. And it, it, as it were, it's an illustration then of exactly what he writes there in verse uh, 16, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. These Gentiles are the offering that Paul brings to Jerusalem, the city of the temple. Isn't that a beautiful illustration of uh, this connection between missions and worship? Now, for those that are on the, the front lines, as it were, of uh, missions, of uh, the missionary enterprise, uh, they have a special privilege of, of bringing those who have come to faith uh, through their word uh, to God as offerings in worship. But I would say that, that we also, to the extent that we are involved in their ministries, as we pray, as we give, as we support and encourage them, that we also are involved in worshiping God through missions. I just think as, as Wayne and Hillary go out, they have that privilege of, of being involved in worshiping God through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what it says. This is a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel among the nations. And to the extent that we support them in prayer, then we also are worshiping God in missions. I just heard a story uh, a few days ago of uh, a missionary statesman who went to Chad. Uh, Chad is in West Africa, and uh, that mission uh, that he was associated with had a, a hospital uh, there that was doing uh, mission work and uh, humanitarian relief in the name of Christ. And the, the hospital fell on hard times uh, and, and was declining in its influence. 
But what he said to the missionaries who were there and the staff who were there was, what you have done is not in vain because you have been involved in worshiping God. Irrespective of the results, you have been worshiping God. And I think that's right. So what we see then uh, in conclusion for that first point uh, is that there is a close connection between worship and missions. Missions results in worship, and missions itself is an act of worship. The second point, the second observation that I would point us to from this text is that missions is an act of God. Missions is an act of God. That is, the, the results of missions are entirely dependent upon God's gracious work. Look at verse 17. Uh, Paul begins, therefore, I glory, or I have a boast. Now, you might think, as soon as you read those first two words, that Paul's bringing attention to himself and what he's doing. I have a boast. But in fact, uh, we just read the next few words, and we know that Paul's not boasting in himself, but he's boasting in Christ Jesus. But there is, of course, this idea of human agency involved in missions. Uh, God chooses to use us as his instruments. And so then Paul does say, in my service to God, that's what he's doing. It's his service to God. I will not venture, he says in verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. So there is this idea of human agency. You may be familiar with the story of uh, William Carey, who in the 1800s went to India, uh, a pioneer missionary to India. He's oftentimes considered to be the father of uh, modern missions. And there's a story of when he was in England, even before he went to India, and he was in a meeting uh, talking about his vision to reach India, and one older Christian statesman by the name of Dr. Ryland uh, stood up and said, sit down, young man, he said. Uh, Let me get this quote right. Young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. I wish I had the English accent that could go with that. Uh, Well, Dr. Ryland, of course, was not correct uh, because this passage demonstrates that Paul did, in fact, anticipate uh, and does acknowledge that there is human agency involved in missions, in the conversion of, quote, the heathen. Um, And earlier on in Romans 10, you'll remember Paul says, how shall they hear without what? Without a preacher. And how shall they preach unless they are sent. So there is uh, the human agency uh, involved in missions. But that is not a reason for boasting, for glorying, uh, Paul says. And the emphasis in this passage is clearly not on the human agency. The, The emphasis on this passage is on what God is doing in missions, that missions is an act of God. And so there are several, again, phrases that come out that are prominent uh, with that idea. He says, as I said in verse 17, I glory in Christ Jesus. 
I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. There are over and over are phrases that Paul's using, descriptions that Paul's using of his ministry saying, it's not me, it's God. God is the one who's at work in all of this. That expression, signs and wonders, uh, may strike you as familiar. If you were to go through a concordance uh, and, and find the references to the signs and wonders, you'd see that it's first of all used of the Exodus and uh, God's gracious work, his sovereign work in everything that was accomplished in the Exodus. The dividing of the Red Sea, the defeat of the Egyptians, the provision in the wilderness, the uh, defeat of the armies uh, in the Promised Land, all that is spoken of as signs and wonders. It's then picked up in the New Testament uh, with Jesus, who does signs and wonders, the same idea, the signs pointing to God as the one who saves, and the wonders uh, reflecting the astonishment of God's power in doing so. It's used also of the apostles in Acts, and then it's used of Paul himself, of signs and wonders, uh, the the miracles uh, that happen, miracles that God does. And so again, this is a pointer to what God is doing uh, in, in missions. It's not himself. Uh, who is the, the primary actor uh, in this missionary enterprise. It is God who is at work. If you turn over a few pages uh, to 1 Corinthians, uh, I, I think Paul encapsulates this idea in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, this is a familiar passage to you, but one I just want to link with this idea that Missions is an act of God. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow grow. God is the ultimate actor uh, in the missionary enterprise. Now, uh, let me direct some words to Wayne and Hillary at this point. Um, I think as you go out, uh, I think that this idea that God is the primary actor should lead you and us to three ideas uh, to to address three situations. The first is that we shouldn't be surprised at what God does in giving results uh, in, as a result of missions. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, if God is the one who is at work, then we shouldn't be surprised. My mind goes back to Acts chapter 10 uh, in the story of, of Peter coming to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile. And up to this point, Uh, Peter and the apostles had not seen the Holy Spirit given to Gentiles, but only to Jews. And then when they see uh, the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles, the passage says, and they were astonished 
that the Holy Spirit had been given. Well, this is a sovereign act of God. We really shouldn't be surprised when we see God work in unexpected ways. Ways that we would not predict, we would not anticipate, perhaps ways that are counterintuitive. Uh, maybe we're not even involved in it, but God's, in a sovereign way, his, the wind of the Holy Spirit blows, and we see the fruit, the results. There are wonderful stories in uh, mission history of this kind of thing happening. Uh, the one that I'd be most familiar with uh, happened in Ethiopia, in uh, eastern Africa. Uh, SIM missionaries, the, the mission agency that we've been associated with, uh, had missionaries that were there in the 1920s. And it was a difficult uh, field uh, up through around 1937 or so, before World War II. They had perhaps 75 uh, newly baptized believers. The Italians uh, came in in 1937, and all the missionaries left. The missionaries were able to return in 1941, uh, four years later, when the Italians were driven out of Ethiopia. They were expecting, of course, to find very few believers left. But in fact, they found that God, in his marvelous, sovereign way, had grown the church to thousands of people in their absence. A few years later, after ministry, uh, the communists took over in uh, 1974. Uh, there was a substantial church by that time, but for 15 years, for 15 years, the communists uh, were in control in Ethiopia uh, with very few uh, missionaries present. Uh, when missionaries were able to return after the communist regime was overthrown, again, they found that the church had blossomed and grown uh, both in numbers and in strength uh, during their absence. What does that mean? Maybe we need to pull out, <laughs> see what God's going to do. But, but there is some truth in that, in that, that we shouldn't be surprised then in what, what God does through his sovereign work in bringing people to himself, oftentimes even apart from our own work or in spite of our own work. So we shouldn't be surprised. Secondly, we shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be discouraged because this is the work of God. He is the one who sovereignly brings about the results. Uh, as Paul says, the, the one who plants is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. It's God who gives the growth. And if God chooses to give the growth, hallelujah. If he doesn't choose to give growth, hallelujah. God is the one who is in control uh, of the results, and we shouldn't be discouraged. Um, and again, there would be many stories that I could relate. Um, good friends of ours, David and Jan Tommy, were missionaries in Nigeria with us. They focused on a group of people called the Full Day People. They're uh, nomads. Uh, there are 20 million of them. It's the largest nomadic people of the world that are unreached. About 99% are Muslim. And they worked with them uh, for probably five or six years. Uh, he was a medical doctor. Uh, both of them had had wonderful hearts, godly people, uh, but there was just so little fruit. Probably when they left, there were maybe six, uh, uh, the, six of those who had professed Christ among the Fofulde people. 
and, and all those did not persevere. And you would be tempted in those kind of circumstances to be discouraged, uh, to pour your heart out for six years among these people and see so little fruit or evidence of so little fruit. But yet, what this tells us is that we are not the ones who are in control of the results. That God is the one who is in control. He is the one who is sovereign. We plant, we water, that's nothing. God is the one who gives the growth. And we should not be discouraged, uh, though we may not see uh, fruit. That is God's work, uh, not ours. Ours is to be faithful. Uh, and again, a passage that you would uh, probably know well, but in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove what? Faithful. Faithful. Not successful in the eyes of the world, but faithful. And I would just charge you, Hillary and Wayne, that that would be your responsibility, would be to be faithful in ministry. And God is the one who will give results uh, as he wills. And thirdly, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't uh, be discouraged, and, and thirdly, we shouldn't take credit. Uh, when there are results uh, in God's grace, then we are not the ones who are responsible. God is the one who has done this marvelous work. And that certainly is what you read in verses 17, 18, when Paul says, I glory in Christ for my service. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God. By the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. You know, when I write missionary reports. That's what I need to remember every time is that, that uh, well, we may have done this, we may have seen these results, but ultimately, it's not about me, it's about God. This is what God is doing. And we need to have that same humility as God chooses to use what we're doing as a congregation and what, what God chooses to do through Wayne and Hillary that that attitude of humility in imitation of what Paul says here, that we would glory in Christ, that we would exalt Christ because of what he has chosen to do in leading people to himself. Point number three. The third point is that, that missions is the task of the worldwide church. Missions is the task of the worldwide church. Again, remember the background. Paul's on this third journey. He's going to Jerusalem. It says in verse 25 there, I'm going to Jerusalem in the service of the saints uh, to take this offering that he refers to in verse 26. They were pleased to do it. That is, the Gentiles were pleased to do it, uh, for they have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. And now they owe it to them, it says, to share with them in material blessings. What I want you to look at is closely is at verse 24. Verse 24. Because when Paul talks about his plans 
about what he's planning to do, he uses a very important word. He says, I plan to do so, that is to visit the Romans, when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through. In other words, he's going to Jerusalem, then he's going to Rome, he's going to visit the Romans, and after I've enjoyed your company for a while, he says, I want you to assist me on my journey to Spain, to assist me on my journey. And that word, assist me, is oftentimes used of people who are beginning a journey and people come alongside them and provide what the, for the needs of the journey. It's used in, in Titus, and if you would want to turn there, uh, you get a good glimpse of the, the meaning of this word. Uh, the very end of Titus, Titus 3.13. Paul says, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. That's it. That's the word. Do everything to help them on their way. And see that they have everything they need. That's the idea. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I'm coming to you in Rome, and when I stop in Rome, I'm going to visit you, and then I want you to be those who support me in my journey to, to uh, Spain. You need to provide what I need. I have need of finances. I have need of pe people to accompany me in my journey. Maybe you have names and contacts of people in Spain that I can uh, join up with. Uh, I need your prayers. I need your support. Now, usually when we think about missions, we have a conception of missions as from the West to the rest. That's how we, we describe it, from the West uh, to the rest. And historically, at least the past couple hundred years, uh, God graciously and wonderfully used that paradigm in, uh, in the missionary enterprise around the world. People that were coming from a traditionally Anglo-Saxon background in England, US, Australia, New Zealand, these people from these countries were going and uh, into places that were in Latin America, Asia, and uh, in Africa. And God used uh, that time. But, but this perception is really misplaced. And it's misplaced for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, now, now there are more Christians in those non-Western places than there are here. Uh, the the Anglo-Saxon countries, North America, Europe, and so forth, have a minority of Christians compared to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. There are more Christians in the rest than there are in the West. And not only that, but there are actually more missionaries coming from those countries. So probably about 10 years ago, there was a shift in the number of missionaries that were coming from the West and those coming from the rest. And there are now more missionaries coming from those countries than there are from those traditionally Anglo-Saxon ascending uh, countries. But most important of all, this is not even the pattern that we see in the New Testament from the West to the rest or even from Jerusalem uh, to the rest. Because if you think through what's, what's happened in the book of Acts and what we see here, it's not that paradigm. 
In fact, what we should be thinking is not from the West to the rest, but it's from everywhere to everywhere. That's what we see. So think back uh, to Acts. Even uh, when you think of, of Antioch, all right, Paul, uh, well, let, let's remember that when Paul begins each of his three journeys, he's not beginning in Jerusalem. He begins from Antioch. Antioch is his sending church. That's his, the church that commends Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 is Antioch, not Jerusalem. And Antioch, even though there were Christians from Jerusalem that came, there were also, according to Acts, Christians, Christians from Cyrene and Cyprus who came and started that church in Antioch. So it's not just from Jerusalem to the rest. And so here, Paul, coming from, uh, from Antioch, now is going to go to Rome, and he's saying, now you guys in Rome, you're going to be the sending base for me on my next journey to Spain. And so it's not at all from Jerusalem to the rest. In fact, you begin to see people coming from all over to all over. And that's what we see more clearly in the New Testament. Uh, sometimes we use the Acts 1.8 uh, passage uh, from Jerusalem, Samaria, and we, we think that's the paradigm for missions uh, in terms of geography. But in fact, when you read Acts, it isn't that way. Uh, you see it maybe overall as the general picture beginning in Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. But in fact, you see missionaries going all over uh, and from all over uh, in, in this. And Paul is a good example. So it's not from the, the West uh, to the rest. Uh, let me use an illustration from contemporary times. Uh, in Malaysia, a few months ago, I met a missionary named Wati. Now, Wadi is not from the West. Uh, Wadi grew up in India. Now, you normally think of India as a predominantly Hindu uh, country, and it is. But in the far northeast of India, if, if you don't, uh, you'd almost have to look at a map if you weren't familiar with Indian geography. But in the far northeast, uh, our Indian brothers will know about this, uh, there, is, uh, there are several states up there that, that have a, quite a strong church, a strong Christian church. And these guys are really uh, involved in missions, in missions to other places in India and missions in other places in Asia. Wadi came from that area. And after university in India, he went to Singapore for his theological studies. While he was in Singapore, a church in Hong Kong uh, heard about his ministry and decided to support him financially. Right now, Wadi is in Cambodia. Uh, he is the vice president of the Phnom Penh Bible School uh, in Cambodia. And he's also in association with a British uh, missionary agency. So here we have five countries that are involved in this sort of partnership. Uh, India and Singapore and Hong Kong and Cambodia. And, uh, and Britain altogether. And that's more of what we're seeing these days, is the typical missionary is not from the West, but it's, it follows the paradigm that we see in scriptures, and that is that churches, wherever they are planted, wherever they are planted, become mission-sending churches. And that's what God's plan is. And we need to partner with those kind of churches. 
uh, here at CBC, we need to partner with those kind of churches that are, are involved in missions and doing it around the world. And we need to do so with an attitude uh, similar to what Paul had, an attitude of partnership and an attitude of humility. If you look there in, in verse 27, uh, you see this illustrated when it says that the Gentiles were pleased to bring this offering to the Jews. For if the Jews have, rather, if the Gentiles had shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. In other words, there's some reciprocity there. There's mutuality between the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul himself sees that in his own ministry. Look at the very beginning of Romans. Romans 1, verse 11. Romans 1, verse 11. Now here's Paul, an apostle, speaking to the Romans, all right, a relatively young church. And he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. But then read, read on, verse 12. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You see that humility that Paul has. He says, I want to partner with you, uh, you Roman church, as you spend me, send me to Spain, and I want to see us be mutually encouraged. And that's the kind of partnerships that, that we need to have with churches around the world. <clears throat> churches that are characterized uh, by humility, or partnerships that are characterized uh, by humility. <clears throat> There's the tendency, I'm afraid, uh, in my experience, that as Western churches or as Western missions partner with uh, other non-Western churches, that there is a hangover of a colonial or paternalistic attitude. That isn't what we see in Paul. <clears throat> Paul has that spirit of humility that we need to imitate in our partnerships. And there, let me tell you, there is a lot that these non-Western churches can offer us even as we offer them something in partnership. Uh, in, in the Korean church, if we could learn from the Korean church how to pray and how to give, uh, and, and the missionary zeal that the Korean church has is phenomenal. And we have a lot to learn from that church, even though it's just over a little over 100 years old. Uh, and, and we have something to offer also in that partnership. Uh, but, but the main point that I'm trying to bring about or trying to say is that missions is the worldwide task of the church or the task of the worldwide uh, church. It is not simply something that is exclusive to us uh, in the West. Well, let me close with that uh, point then and uh, trust that, that as we've looked at this passage of Paul, if we, as we have heard his heart, uh, we have, have seen uh, missions and how it correlates with worship, how missions not only results in worship, but it is an act of worship, uh, how missions is an act of God, and how missions is the task of the worldwide church. 
Let's pray as we ask God to align our thoughts and our, our actions, our values around his word. Father, we, we recognize your heart. We acknowledge your heart in the desire to bring men to yourself and that they would in turn worship you uh, for your wonderful and amazing plan of redemption. A plan that we uh, remembered even this week in terms of its uh, fulfillment in the sending of Christ. And we will see further fulfillment uh, in the coming again of our Lord. And in this interim period, you have given us the privilege and opportunity to be your instrument, as Paul says, in the priestly duty of the proclamation of the gospel of God. I would pray, Father, that you would empower us and guide us uh, through your spirit in that task. And I once again uh, join with those here in prayer for Hillary and Wayne as they leave uh, for France in a few days. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage them with these thoughts and that you would motivate uh, their ministry by this understanding of what you are doing in the world and that you would encourage them in times of difficulty as well as times in which you graciously show fruit uh, through what they are doing and they bring glory to you through it. We would ask in Christ's name. Amen.